0: All right, you guys can grab a seat. Man, thank you all so much for being with us. This is always my most favorite night of the week. And so I appreciate you guys coming and hanging out with us here at Engage. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open those up to Genesis 25. That's where we're going to be. So feel free to pull out your phones or pull out your Bibles. Open those up to Genesis chapter 25. Um, As we really wrap up this series, The Art of Saying No. So if you remember, the whole purpose of this series is we have this desire in our lives to look more like Jesus. And we saw the first week that Jesus knows how to say no a lot better than we do. And so what we've been doing in this series is just looking at so many things that we often say yes to. right? Things like doubt or being busy and looking at how we can learn to say no to them. And every time we do this, we learn to say no to something so we can say yes to something else. So with doubt, we learn to say no to what we see so we can say yes to what we believe. And then we talked about being busy last week. We talked about saying no to opportunities so we can say yes to rest. And so tonight we're going to do the same thing. But tonight we're going to talk about something that all of us in the room can identify with and all of us in the room have the tendency to oftentimes say yes to this. And what that is is temptation. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at why we find ourselves so often saying yes to it. And then we're going to look at how we can learn to say no to it. And so Genesis chapter 25 is going to help us do that today. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, no worries. We're going to have the verses on the screen. So I have two boys, um, Ezra, who's four, and Titus, who's almost two. And I have this goal as their dad for these boys to be really close and it's all because of a This Is Us episode that I watched. True story. Very, very true story. Um, if, you, if you watch the show, you know that, like, Jack Pearson is, like, this amazing dad. Like, he's phenomenal. Like, all the rest of us are just trying to compete for second place. Like, the guy's just awesome. And so there's this episode where he is with his two young boys, and they're fighting with each other. And so he gets in the middle of it, and he breaks them up, and he's like, don't you guys get it? I mean, there ain't nobody when you grow up is going to have the type of experiences that you guys have. So you guys always got to be close. You always got to have each other's back. And so I'm watching this, and I'm like, I get it, Jack. <laughs> I get it. And so ever since then, I've had this, just this desire to cultivate this really close friendship with my boys, this really close bond between the two of them. But no matter how hard I try to do this, I keep finding resistance, because even at their young ages, even though they're only one and four, they are already creating this sibling rivalry. And I especially see it in this, I want what you have attitude. Right? So when one brother has something, the other brother is competing to try to get it from them. And this manifests itself in so many different ways in our lives. So many different ways. So about a week and a half ago, we decided to buy our youngest son, Titus, a Toy Story 4 soundbook. But his brother wanted it so bad that when we got home, Ezra secretly took it and tried to stuff it in our sofa chair so that his brother couldn't find it and that he could have it. A few nights ago, they were taking a bath together and they were playing with these little toy cups. And Titus wanted Ezra's cups so badly, even though he already had some, but he wanted his so badly that he was clawing at them. So much so that when his older brother got out of the bathtub, Ezra was covered in scratch marks on his chest and had a gash in his chin. And just this Saturday, they're hanging out in the morning. We have this like Spider-Man car that nobody drives like 95% of the time. It just sits in the corner of our house. But of course, when one of them wants to drive it, the other one does too. So Ezra decides to drive this thing and Titus wants to drive it. So Ezra gets off of it for a few minutes and he's watching TV and Titus jumps on it. But of course, when Titus gets on it, Ezra decides all of a sudden, wait, I want to drive this car too. And so he puts himself underneath this car that Titus is on as if to say to him, you can have this over my dead body. I mean, and and this is an everyday thing. Every single day we'll deal with this. Every single day. Because they have this competitive, I want what you have attitude. And so it causes them to have these these crazy interactions with each other. And see, this same sibling rivalry that my boys have is the same thing that's going on in the passage that we look at today between two other brothers named Jacob and Esau. See, Esau is just kind of this rough, tough outdoorsman who loves being outside, and he was deeply loved by his dad. And then his brother Jacob is this kind of introverted mama's boy who just enjoys being at home. And so as we jump into this story, these brothers are competing with each other. And what we're going to see is that one brother desperately wants what the other one has. So let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 29 together. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which is actually Hebrew sounds similar to red. So Esau, who's actually usually a really good hunter, goes out in the field and kind of finds himself in this bit of an embarrassing problem. Because even though he's been out all day, he doesn't catch anything. And so not only is the dude tired and starving, but he's got nothing to eat. But fortunately, right, Jacob has been at home and he's been cooking. And he's made some red stew, something that today would be similar to vegetable soup. And so because the guy's exhausted, Jake, or Esau rather decides to hit Jacob up for some of this food. And Jacob says he can have some, but on one condition. Because this is what we see in verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. So Jacob sees that his brother is in this desperate situation and he decides to take advantage of it. He realizes this is his chance. Because like my boys, Esau has something that Jacob desperately wants. And so he tells him that he can have this if he gives him his birthright. So in this moment, he decides to exploit his brother, to tempt his brother, to trade him his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, birthrights obviously aren't very common in our culture, so we don't really get really what's going on here, but this would have been a huge deal back then. Huge deal. Because birthrights were usually given to the oldest son, and it guaranteed that they had this really special inheritance. It guaranteed that they would get twice as much when their father passed away as any of the other siblings. But what makes this story that we're reading even more entertaining is that this birthright is a lot bigger dear than most of the birthrights in that day. And it's all because of who Jacob and Esau's grandfather is, Abraham. Because not too far before this, God decided to choose Abraham out of every other person who was living on the earth to be the person that he was going to bless. Where he chose their grandfather to be the person whose descendants would be God's unique people, right? The Israelites, the Jews. And God also made a promise to Abraham that through his family tree, the world would get to experience salvation. So no doubt, so many times when Jacob and Esau were little boys and they were hanging out with their grandfather Abraham, he would tell them about that night, that night that God told him to go outside. Right, and to look up at the stars, to look up the heavenly lights that Abraham could not count. And then God said, Abraham, your family tree is going to be that, as large as that. And then when he would tell this story to these boys, he would then look at Esau. And he would say, Esau, as the firstborn son, this amazing blessing that God has given to me, is to be yours too. So what Jacob is asking Esau here isn't just some certificate that he can hang on his wall, right? This is a huge deal because this inheritance isn't just physical, it's also something spiritual. And so by Esau giving up this birthright, he's gonna be doing something that is gonna impact his entire life and his family for generations to come. But despite how big of a deal this is, notice how Esau responds to Jacob in verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die, Of what use is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me, now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So shockingly, despite everything that we know and how important this birthright is, Jacob, or excuse me, Esau chooses to sell it to Jacob. And he tells him what uses it if I'm dead, right? Which honestly is probably just an exaggeration that Esau says in order to kind of justify what he's about to do. And see, here's why I think that. Because after Jacob makes this ridiculous offer to Esau, notice that Esau doesn't try to barter with him, right? He doesn't try to haggle with him. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not going to give you that, but I'll give you something else instead for this soup. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he just says yes. Right? I mean, this would be like somebody going to Mark Zuckerberg and saying, give me all your Facebook shares if I buy you number one at Chick-fil-A. Dude, I love Chick-fil-A, right? It's on a whole another level. We all are going to experience the eternity in heaven, right? We get that. But that's an insane offer. Nobody would take that up. But without hesitation, Esau does this. Even though this offer is a joke, for some reason Esau chooses to take it seriously, so seriously that he doesn't even make a counteroffer. Instead, he just makes the deal. He shakes hands on it. And then just like that, Esau gives into this temptation to trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. I know, whenever we read this story, because I know y'all have heard this story going up. Whenever, whenever we read this story, right, it, it's so easy for us to look at this and think Esau is an idiot, right? The guy's dumb, right? So easy for us to think I would never do what Esau does in this situation. But see, before we find ourselves saying that, we have to remember why does all of this happen, right? All of this happens because Esau desperately wanted something, right? He desperately wanted a bowl of stew. So much so that in that moment, nothing else mattered, not even his future fortune. And if we look across our lives and we look at the people we know and the stories we hear, so often we see people give up so much for so little because in a moment, nothing else mattered. A dad would tear apart his amazing family that he spent decades to build for a one-night stand with a coworker. Right, a student will get kicked out of college who has a full-ride scholarship because they choose to plagiarize a simple paper. Right, and someone would even trade a life of freedom for a life behind bars for a brief moment of revenge. Man, if we look around our life we see this all the time because all those situations have the same thing in common. All of those situations, although different from this story, are trading a birthright for a bowl of stew. They're giving up so much to get so little. You see, the reason this happens to us is because when temptation hits us, just like Esau, the only thing that matters in that moment is what we want the most. Right? That's what we're focused on. We're not worried about how this is going to impact us down the road. right? We're not worried about how our future is going to be determined by this or impacted by this. What we're focused on in that moment is what we want. Right? We want that easy grade. We want that moment of fun. We want that person to pay. And whenever we find ourselves in a situation where we have this strong want with costly consequences. See, that's when our enemy, just like Jacob, chooses to exploit us. He chooses to take advantage of us because he knows that want that you have in your life, that only thing that you can focus on, the only thing that matters to you, he knows that's a soft spot. He knows he can use that to get you to sin, to get you to do something that he wants you to do. So if your strongest desire is to have intimacy in a relationship, then the enemy is going to tempt you to push boundaries. Right? If your strongest desire is to get an easy grade or to get a grade in a test that you're strung, a class that you're struggling with, then he's going to tempt you to cheat. Right? And if your strongest desire is to make somebody hurt the way that they've caused you to hurt, then he's going to tempt you to say some pretty horrible and awful things to them. And see, the reason that Satan loves to attack us there, the reason he loves to attack us at our wants is because he knows, just like Esau, our greatest want is our greatest weakness. Or excuse me, he knows that our strongest want is our greatest weakness. He knows that things that we want the most is also the biggest weakness that you have in your life. And so often he'll attack us there. Because he knows that that tactic, just like in this story, often works. Our strongest want is our greatest weakness. And so after Jacob chooses to take advantage of his brother by focusing on his want that he knew was a weakness, this is what we see happens next. Verse 34, it says, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So this defining moment that essentially was when Esau gave his life away ends just like this. With Esau simply eating this meal, and then getting up and leaving as if this was just like any meal that he's ever had in his life. And see how calm Esau is in this story that ends very anticlimactically, right? Is what to me makes this so disturbing. Because even though he gave in to the temptation, even though he said yes to the temptation to trade his birthright for a meal, The way that Esau responds shows that Esau felt like this wasn't a big deal, right? This felt so innocent to him. And because he despised his birthright, it shows that he felt like this choice was actually the right choice. He felt like this was the best decision that he should have made in this situation. And even though this boy has just ruined his life, Esau in this moment doesn't feel like this. Because saying yes to his strongest want actually seems like a good decision to him. You see, whenever we find ourselves getting tempted by the enemy and we find ourselves giving in to our strongest want just like Esau does, so often it also feels innocent. Right. In so many ways, it seems like a good decision, right? Because let's, I mean, let's be real. Let's just be honest, right? Getting an easy grade in a class that we're struggling with feels good, right? Verbally laying into somebody who's wounded us, that feels good. And so I know we've been conditioned to think that sin is bad and to say that sin is bad. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we admit that a lot of the time sin seems good. And I think there's a big reason why we feel this way about it. Because see, I think the way that we so often see that sin in our life that we struggle with, that sin in our life that we're tempted to do often, so often we see that the way that we see a girl or a guy that we like, but our friends tell us we shouldn't date them. So, so, so even though we like really like this person, even though we really want to be in a relationship with them, our friends keep telling us that they're bad news. And I mean, I guess we, we kind of get what they're saying, right? I mean, they're not really the most immoral person, but like they're definitely not as bad as our friends act like they are. I mean, they're definitely not doing what our friends are, are, are acting like they're doing. But see, because we respect our friends' opinion, because we respect what they have to say, we won't date them, right? We'll choose not to be in the relationship. But if we run into that person during class, we're going to say hey to them, right? We're not going to ignore them. And if they ask us to go out to lunch, we're for sure saying yes. Because the reason, we're not, the reason we're staying away from them isn't because we think they're bad, but it's because our friends do. And see, the way that we see that situation is the same way that we see that sin that we struggle with in our lives. And we see it like that person that our friends don't want us to date, but we really don't think it's that bad. Right? At least not as bad as God says it is. But because we respect God's opinion, right? we'll choose to fight against temptation. right? We'll choose to avoid sin in our life. But if we're honest, when we find ourselves being next to it, and we find ourselves hanging out with it, so many times we say yes. Why? because the reason we're staying away with it isn't because we think it's bad, but it's because God does. And so all of us in this room live with this contradiction of the conscience. We live with this tension between what we know and what we believe, right? Because we all know that sin is bad, right? We get that. We've all read the Bible. We've all heard the sermons. We all know that sin is bad. We get that. But the problem is we don't believe that it is. And so we find ourselves living in this contradiction between our head and our heart. Because our head says that sin is bad, but our heart says that it's not. Our heart says it's good because from experience, we enjoy it. From experience, it seems good. From experience, it's something that we enjoy doing. That is why it is so hard for us to say no to temptation And why we do it over and over and over again? Because we know that sin is bad. But we don't believe that it's any more harmful than a hot bowl of stew. And so we'll find ourselves saying yes to temptation when it wants to hang out with us. So then the question is obviously, what do we do? Right? What do we do in, in, in the situation where we feel like sin is good when we want to say yes to temptation? How do we avoid being like Esau? So when my boys aren't trying to compete to have what the other one has, they actually do love playing with each other. So, so Jack Pearson would be proud of me. They, they do enjoy playing with each other. And when they do, the oldest one, Ezra, loves to be physical with his brother. Right. He loves to hug him really hard or to put him on the ground and start tickling him or to like drag him down the hallway to get him to go into the room that he wants him to go in. And even though he's just trying to have fun, what he doesn't realize is by doing this, he hurts his brother. Right? He's a little bit too rough with his brother. who's still really young. And so, so often he just ends up hurting him. And so we have a rule in my house. There's a rule that if Ezra wants to touch Titus or put his hands on him, he has to ask mommy and daddy first. A rule that Ezra literally never follows. (laughs) I mean, he never follows it. Like It doesn't matter what we say, how much we we beg him, how much we get on to him when he does it he still finds himself constantly touching his brother and his brother constantly runs to us crying because he's in pain. And see, the reason this happens despite what I say is that Ezra doesn't believe that touching Titus is dangerous. He doesn't. To him, it seems fun. Right? To him, it seems good. It's just something that he wants to do when he wants to have a good time with his brother. And so when I tell him not to do it, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get that his dad, that I'm trying to protect him. That I'm trying to protect him from doing something that's going to cause his brother to have harm or to be harmed. To protect him from doing something that I know that he's going to regret later. See, Ezra, he's four, so he doesn't understand. He is too young to get that I know him better than he knows himself. And so he will keep touching his brother. He'll keep putting his hands on his brother because he doesn't trust me. He doesn't trust that when I tell him not to do it, that I have his best interest in mind. And see, when it comes to temptation, neither do we. Because what we don't often realize is that temptation is less about giving into desire and more about giving up trust. Right? It's less about giving into desire and more about giving up trust. Because every single time we say yes to temptation is because we don't trust what God has to say about sin is true. And so we're like my son, we'll do it over and over and over again because we don't get it. To us, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. And see, when we find ourselves thinking that, when we find ourselves having that mindset, just like my son, it's because we've forgotten something that's so important. That God, our Heavenly Father, has this deep desire to protect us, especially from the dangers of sin. So much so that he asked his son to come into this world and die an agonizing and painful death on a cross so that we would no longer have to be controlled by sin. Because the scriptures are clear, all of us are born slaves to sin. So even though it might seem good to us, the reality is it wants to take advantage of you, it wants to abuse you, and sin doesn't care if it ruins your life because he's a slave master. And so even though it seems good, sin wants to wreck you. But God was willing to experience hell on a cross and to rise from the dead so that he could rescue us from this power of sin in our life. And then in his desire to keep you safe, He tells you time and time again in scripture to stay away from it, not to mess with it. Because he knows just like that fruit that Eve chose to eat in the garden, it might seem delicious, but it's actually deadly. God wants to protect you. But see, every single time we find ourselves saying yes to temptation, it's because we don't trust what God says about sin is true. And it's because we've forgotten what the cross shows us. Because the fact that Jesus was willing to do everything possible so that the death grip of sin would be released from your life tells us that God's design for your life is so much better than that desire that you have in front of you. I mean, when God tells you not to sin, it's not because he's trying to rob you of blessings. It's because he wants to give those to you. Because his design is to protect you and for you to have an amazing life. And he doesn't want you to do something that he knows you're going to regret for the rest of your life. He doesn't want you to trade your birthright for a bowl of stew. And so because of God's deep desire to protect you, he doesn't want you to sin because he knows you better than you know you. And so even though sin might seem good, what we have to know, what we have to realize is that what God says about it is true. And that God has your best interest in mind. Because if the dude was willing to go to a cross and die for you, I think we can bet our money on the fact that he cares about you and that he cares deeply about what kind of life you have. And so whenever we find ourselves thinking that sin is good, what we have to do is trust that what God says about it is true because God, your Heavenly Father, who wants to protect you, is wanting you to stay away from it. And so what all this means is if we want to change the way that we see sin, if we want to learn the art of saying no to temptation, then you say no to what seems good so that you can say yes to what is better. Because God's design for you is always better than sin, your former slave master's design for you. And the first step in doing this is choosing to trust God. It's choosing to trust that God's design for you is so much better than that strong desire that you have in front of you. So trust what God says, even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, even when it doesn't seem like it makes sense to us. Let us know that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He has our best interest in mind. The cross proves that. And let's choose to trust him. And let's not be like Esau. who gives away so much for something so little and misses out on the better things that he could have had in his life. Right, tonight choose to trust God by saying no to what seems good so that you can say yes to what's better, which is God's design for you to live a life free of sin. And let's find ourselves resting in the fact that we have a heavenly father who protects us and always has our best interest in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to realize that you are God who loves us enough to die for us. And that you are God who even in the midst of our life, when it seems like that sin is good, God, in those moments when temptation seems like the good decision, when it seems like the right choice, help us to remember that you are God who wants to protect us from things and that you know us better than we know ourselves. And even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it, even when it doesn't make sense to us, may we remember that the cross shows us that we can trust you. The cross shows us that you are a God who pursues us and loves us and that you always, always do things for our good and for your glory. So my prayer, God, is right now we would sing to you. Right now we would worship you. Right now we would stand before a God whose promises are yes and amen. And realize that you were always faithful to us, even when we're faithless. So hear our cries and our, and our songs to you. And may we rest in a God who loves us. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.